0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
0: And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to Moment of Truth today, Dr. Sharon Strauss. She's a geriatrician and a clinical epidemiologist who trained at the University of Toronto and the University of Oxford. She is the Director of the Knowledge and Translation Program and Physician-in-Chief at St. Michael's Hospital and Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. She also holds a Tier 1 cancer. Canada Research Chair in Knowledge, Translation and Quality of Care and has authored more than 400 peer-reviewed publications and three textbooks in evidence-based medicine, knowledge translation and mentorship. And since 2015, she has consistently been in the top 1% of highly cited clinical researchers as per web of science and has an H-index of 86. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the show, uh, Dr. Strauss.
2: Thank you very much for having me David really really appreciate the time. If you don't mind me
0: asking, I'm not sure of what that h-index uh, means, <laughs> what, if you don't mind me asking.
2: Yeah, great question. Um, so, as you know, in, in the academic uh, life, we get assessed based on things like uh, publications and, mm. and grants and things like that, because, you know, everybody always likes to count up those things. Mm. And and one of the things that people like to count is um, how many times your articles get cited. And, um, and so then the H index is a measure of that. So mm. then if you've got an H index of five, that means you've got five articles that have been cited five Five times. Um, if you've got an H index of 100 that means you've got a hundred articles that have been that have been cited hundred times. so um, so it's really a measure of how many times your, your articles get cited and, and the idea behind it is that it's supposed to be a little bit of a better measure than some of the other kind of more traditional metrics mm-hmm. like the impact factor of a journal for example. Okay. so, um, so it's, it's one of the, one of the metrics that um, that's often used in, um, in, ins- in assessing people.
0: I see. Great. Well, thank you for explaining that. that maybe that is something uh, that you'll be uh, be able to come out with after you've done these studies that you're working <laughs> on now. And that's why you're here today to talk about this pan-Canadian studies that are investigating why COVID-19 has been so devastating to long-term care facility residents and staff. Now, you are heading up a study that will include uh, people in 72 long-term care facilities in the greater Toronto area, as well as the ottawa champlain region. And... And uh, part of what you're going to be doing is finding out how many people previously had COVID-19 and whether they had symptoms or not, as well as determine what the factors uh, at the facilities are, what the individual factors were, and what immune response levels are associated with previous COVID-19 infection or with prevention of infection, as well as you're going to be tracking how the COVID-19 vaccines influenced immune response over time. And uh, now this is part of... uh, some other studies that are happening across the country, I, I'm not sure of the timeline of this, but could you would you mind explaining a little bit about the study you'll be doing and how it will be related to the other cross-provincial studies that are taking place?
2: Yeah, no, no, for sure. Thank you. So, so our study was just recently funded in, um, and we we heard in December of, of 2020 that our project was funded and it'll be happening over the over the next year or so. And and basically um, with the COVID Immunity Task Force, which is a national initiative, they've really been trying to identify how we can advance research efforts to fill some of the gaps that, that we have around understanding COVID and, and our immune response and in particular, our project was funded to address some of the gaps around the long-term care home sector. And in particular, trying to trying to identify why um, that sector was so particularly hard hit mm. with COVID. And really to, to gain a better understanding of, of both the immunity as well as the vaccine associated um, immunity. To inform not just now but but also in in future and um and so our project is is um is really based on on some work that we've been doing since march of of 2020 when the pandemic first started and and trying to support the the work in the long-term care homes and and the outbreaks and and i i know david that you know and all and your listeners know that you know we've been terrible witness to the, the, the horrible tragedy that we've seen in long-term care across Canada and, and in particular, we, were, we have been doing some work to understand how we can support the long-term care homes from an infection prevention and control perspective, as well as understanding how to, to optimize wellness amongst the staff. And and really trying to then integrate that with some work to understand the immunity side of things as well. So um, so that's that's kind of a an overview of our project. And then there was a number of other projects that that were funded across the country as well to understand what was going on in the long term care sector in different provinces. And I think that's going to be hugely helpful to 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 help us have a better um evidence-based and understanding of the immune systems in the residents in long-term care homes, as well as the staff in long-term care homes. And now that we have the vaccines as well, the response to the vaccine now, but also over time.
0: Right. I'm sure there's going to be no shortage of all kinds of questions that are going to to be asked over the next number of years having to do with looking back, uh, just like you are sort of uh, picking up that from with with what your study is doing, but also looking forward in terms of uh, not only in terms of the the health side of things, but also, I guess, in terms of uh, how our our long-term care homes are, are are funded how they're put together what can be done to improve the situations in these because we we, we were really uh hit by a landslide of, of a lot of questions around this whole thing when COVID hit weren't we
2: Absolutely. And uh, I was, I'm was i on a task force as well for the Royal Society of Canada. And along with colleagues, including Dr. Carol Estabrooks the, from the University of Alberta and others, we did a, a report for the Royal Society that came out last June that really kind of highlighted some of these factors in the long-term care home sector. And in particular, highlighting that you know, we've had a ton of different inquiries and commissions and reviews that have happened over the last 50 years in the long-term care home sector, and they've all identified the same challenges. And, and COVID has not um, revealed any anything new amongst mm. these things, but it's really, I think what COVID has done because of um, because of things that are unique to COVID in terms of its transmission rate mm. and things, it's, it's really highlighted some of these fundamental challenges within the long-term care home Sector, and you know, in a particular, how we in Canada have have really neglected these these issues, despite you know report after report and commission after commission showing the same things, such as our failure to support the the staff mm. in the long term care mm-hmm. home sector and. You know, as as you know, if we look across the country, the the you know, ninety percent of the, the direct care within the long term care homes are provided by, you know, Ontario in Ontario what we would call personal support workers in other provinces they might be called care aides. Mm. And you know the majority of these are, are women. Um, if you look across Canada as well, the majority of these are racialized individuals. They're yeah. older than the the median age of the workforce across Canada, and um, and they get uh, paid less than what um, their counterparts get in, in acute care. And so it's a it's it's a huge challenge that these are individuals who um, you know are 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 undervalued and their work is undervalued, which also has this, makes a statement about what value we place based on the residents who are living in the long-term care Mm. home sectors and the ageism that Mm -hmm. exists, Mm -hmm. because these are homes, you know, they're long-term care homes. They're not long-term care hospitals and these are homes for the residents. And, and so I think that, you know, it has highlighted that we have not um, we have not addressed these, these challenges and, and really thought about um, how best we can support the residents and, And their needs, which have again, um, you know, grown over time as well as, as you know, about two thirds of them have a diagnosis of dementia. Many of them have in multiple chronic diseases. And so their care needs have increased without us, you know, providing the the relevant support for the for the staff, and and that's been you know some of the major factors that's contributed to what we've seen in long term care homes in yeah. Canada. Yep.
0: Yeah. And, and I'm sure those people have a very stressful job uh, in many instances, and um, having them put under the whole. Uh, situation that that COVID has brought on. I, I want to go back to uh, something you said off the top, and that is about the uh, the COVID nineteen immune task force or the oh. C I T F. And that's a, this is a federal government task force. Is that right?
2: That's right. That's right. It's funded by, it's funded at the federal level, and um, and uh, was was implemented to address some of the some of the gaps and advance our understanding of um, the zero prevalence of COVID, and and um, advance our knowledge of, of how um, our immune systems are responding to mm. to COVID. And now with the vaccine coming out, it's identified you know additional questions that that we need to have answered as well. So it's it was really um, implemented quite quickly to. To, um, to identify uh, research groups that could answer some of these critical questions to inform mm. planning.
0: You know, I, I just thought of this as you were talking there, and you'll be going through this this process over the next year or so, as you said. Will you be withholding that information until you've got all of that information back, or will you be updating uh, the the general population about things that you're finding as you go along?
2: So great question, and, and absolutely. In particular, our project. Um, so our project is based on co creation, where we do it with all the relevant partners right from the beginning, from developing the questions through to completing the research, right through to um, to disseminating. And so people will be aware of the results as we um, as we learn them, and and um, and we you know are not going to wait for you know a year from now you know to to reveal everything at the end.
3: Mm.
2: You know we have different um, different milestones along. Along the way, that we will be able to um, to share with with all of our partners on the team, but also more broadly with um, with the public. I mean, obviously, you know, the, you know, the, the the outcomes at 12 months we can't do until then. But right. <laughs> um, but as we learn things along the way, um, you know, we will be able to to share what we can. In particular, for people who are enrolled in the study, and if they choose to enroll in certain aspects, like if they want to. Um, you know, give uh, give their blood samples or give their dry blood spots and things like that to learn about their, um, their own immunity and their, for example, their antibodies. Mm. We will be... Um, sharing that information with those individuals as well, which I think, you know, is, is is an important factor so that people will be able to learn about their immunity over time as well. Right. And in response to the vaccine too. Hmm.
0: Now, you know, speaking in terms of long-term care homes that, that you'll be looking at, you know, I had always assumed that the reason that COVID was so devastating to the long-term care residents was one age and, and, and a, a weakened immune system. Um, Am am I incorrect? Am I assuming, uh, you know, wrongly? Um, You know, and and you shouldn't assume, you know what, uh, you know, if you break down that, assume what that (laughs) word means.
2: And so absolutely, you, you know, I think it's, I think it's such a great point that you raise because um, so it's so absolutely if you think about residents within long term care homes, these are people who um, are more physically who are more frail mm. than than people who would be independent in the community. They um, they do have what you know, what's called a, you know, a more frail immune system. They and but again, it's something that we're learning more about with with COVID. We also know that, you know, as I mentioned, about two thirds of them have a diagnosis of, of dementia mm. and they have multiple chronic diseases. They have sure. things like respiratory diseases, like, um, you know, chronic obstructive airways disease. They have diabetes. They have hypertension. They have osteoporosis. You know, they have they have multiple chronic diseases that also increase the, the chance of um, more severe disease and complications from COVID. So all of these things, um, you know, contribute to, to what we saw with, with the COVID outbreak, because you know, to, to be eligible to be in a long term care home, you require a certain level of, of support with regards to what we call our activities of daily living. So, you know, being able to dress yourself or toilet yourself mm-hmm. or, or bathe yourself. You're going to need extra help in order to meet criteria for a long-term care home. So so these are people you know, who are frail and have functional impairment, multiple chronic diseases. And so they are going to be at a higher risk um, of, of not just of the infection, but of having uh, more severe disease and complications.
0: Mm. Now, as you, you head into your study, do we know any more at this point in time about the weaknesses that COVID might go after in a host that create the serious illness or death. Do we have any more new information at this point in time?
2: Yeah, I think you know it's interesting because I think one of the things that you know we we've, we've discovered with with COVID is that um, you know number one it's it's a tricky virus and every day it seems there's a new yeah. challenge a new twist
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and um, and 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 so you know we're we're constantly learning about um, about it and, and its impact. We do we have seen that um, you know as I mentioned there's more serious illness in, in older individuals. We know um, those with um, with Multiple chronic diseases. We see more serious disease. We also know from the literature, um, you know, worldwide that um, you know racialized individuals have more have more se- um, severe disease, and which again highlights why it's important to um, to prioritize groups for, for vaccination. Um, and um, and so you know, if you look at things in in Canada, for example, um, you know there was a the ICES report. Um, in Ontario showed that immigrant newcomers accounted for about, um, I think it was about 43% of the COVID cases in Ontario, but they only represent about 25% of the, of mm. the population. And part of it is, you know, these are, you know, they've shown that these are um, in particular in individuals who are, living in in, um, in neighborhoods with higher density, mm-hmm. um, you know, higher percentages of, of um, visible minorities, and they were less likely to be tested for COVID, but more likely to be positive for COVID. Mm. And so I think a lot of it has identified how, um, you know, COVID has really um, uh, reflected where on the where we're not doing very well in Canada or internationally on addressing the social determinants of health. And it's really capitalized on those weaknesses that we have failed to address in Canada.
0: Hmm. Mm, okay. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELM and TFM. Listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Or you could be listening on our SoundCloud, where we also uh, post all of our interviews and or one of your favorite podcast platforms. And uh, if you're listening on one of the uh, other radio stations that also carry Moment of Truth, we welcome you as well, my guest. Here on Moment of Truth is Dr. Sharon Strauss and we're talking to her about a study that she'll be getting into over the next year. It's part of the Pan-Canadian studies that investigate why COVID-19 has been so devastating to long-term care facility residents and staff and it's a pleasure to have Dr. Strauss on the show. Now your study is going to be using 72 long-term care facilities in the greater Toronto area, as well as the Ottawa regions. You're going to be recruiting the residents, the staff, and family members as well on how, so do you have any idea roughly how many people you might be looking at over the next year?
2: Uh, So, um, so we're going to be, we anticipate at least for our, some of our sampling studies that we're going to be accessing about 22,000 people at baseline. And then, Mm. Again, another twenty-two thousand people at twelve months, and those are, and that's really for, um, in particular, for some of the antibody testing that that we're um, proposing to do. But we also anticipate impacting a a broader um, uh, sample as well, because not everybody who is within the long-term care home may want to participate in 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 providing samples, but they may want to participate in the other interventions that that we're doing. And in particular, um, you know, I mentioned that we're we're also doing a lot of work to support the long term care staff mm-hmm. and, and really to support wellness and um, you know because you mentioned, David, that you know this is a this is a sector that's been under a lot of stress and um, and they've, they've experienced a lot of moral distress and a, mm. and you know and they're at risk of um, you know of, of PTSD, for example, and sure. and so we're also working then to to create wellness resources and, and a wrapper what we call a wraparound package so that if people require you know being quarantined for example that they would have um facilitated access to you know where they can go for rent support and um groceries and you know access to medications and things like that so that um you know although i said that twenty two thousand at baseline for the samples we anticipate that others may not want to you know participate in the sampling part but may want to um receive access to these other these other pieces and so we anticipate then the, the reach would be much broader
0: hmm. time for a short break stay with us we'll be right back now back to moment of truth with david moses
1: element element, element fm
0: Welcome back. I'm talking to Dr. Sharon Strauss. You mentioned antibodies there, and I noticed from looking at the the breakdown of this, the studies that are going to be conducted, there's subgroup and there's neutralizing (laughs) antibodies. Could you help explain that a little bit?
2: Yeah, no, for sure. So, so we're we're doing a, a number of different um, uh, sampling approaches and and looking at different things. And so, so first of all, um, under Dr. Jen Gommerman, we're going to be looking at saliva, and and in particular, we know from work that Dr. Gommerman's lab had, has done at the very beginning of the pandemic that um, if you look at saliva of people who were infected with with COVID. Um, an antibody called IgM um, appears, and and it's and then it usually is is um, uh, seen up until about 15 days after, and then and then you don't see it anymore. And then there's another antibody that that appears called IgG, which is seen up to about 90 days. And so um, so Dr. Gommerman is going to be um, working with us on understanding how um, how we can um, observe this in the staff within the long-term care sector, and in particular those who've been infected, those who haven't been infected, and then pre and post vaccine, and then over time. So there's there's that piece of antibody work that, that we're going to be doing to really help us understand not just what happens with the infection, but what happens with the vaccine over time. The second, the second um, strategy that we're using is um, Dr. Anne-Claude Gingris. Is leading work where we're looking at dried blood spots, which in this case we're looking at um, the IgG antibody against the um, the spike and something called the receptor binding domain, and then the nucleocapsid proteins that are all part of the of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And then the neutralization assay that you mentioned is. Is a test that she's um, that she's worked on to determine if the antibody can can block that that spike um, receptor binding domain from from binding to its receptor and seeing if there's if if that can actually. Um, happen. And so so that's under Dr. Gingrich, And she's going to do that on the dry blood spots, but also on drawn blood samples, so on the serum. And then Dr. Mary Ostrowski is going to be doing some, some really novel work looking at um, the T-cell immunity. And so helping us understand that aspect of the immune process um, as well. And so we're going to be able to look then at the antibodies across you know, saliva, across the dry blood spots, and then across the serum. And then we're going to have it at the um, uh, you know amongst the long-term care home staff who've had an infection with COVID and people who haven't had an infection. And then pre-vaccine and then post-vaccine at different points in time and in particular, we're, we're looking at, at baseline, so before the, the vaccine, um, and then two to four weeks. Post vaccine, so after the second dose, mm. and then six months after, and then twelve months after, mm. and so we're doing that all in this long-term care home staff, and then Dr. Allison mcgear who's another um, uh, partner on this project, and and we have many partners on the on the project, is also looking at the same approach, but in the residents mm. um, of the long-term care home, and so mm. then we're going to be able to compare across residents. And staff as well. And we'll be able to do this, as I said, over time.
0: This is going to be a fair, fairly large undertaking, as you mentioned, about 22,000 at your baseline. Um, what are you going to be doing to inform people, to let people know what's going on and to get people involved with this process?
2: Yeah, so, so thank you. So we have a, we are, are trying to do a number of different strategies and we um, have a variety of different partners involved with the project. So people from uh, Family Councils Ontario, Ontario Long-Term Care Association, um, Healthcare mm-hmm. Excellence, um, Public Health Ontario, uh, a variety of long-term care homes as well, um, patient uh, um Central care partners and um, clinician groups, and so we're really trying to leverage all of those partnerships and, and disseminate the information about about the study. We have um, reached out to various tables, including. So the the Lind tables have different yeah. um, approaches for supporting infection prevention um, in the long term care home uh, um, sector, and so we've reached out to to those groups as well. But you know, I would really. Um, encourage anybody, any of your listeners, if if they're interests, interested or if they have any questions, like to to please feel free to to reach out and um, always happy to to answer them and um, and in particular if they want to know how to participate or or if they want access to any of the resources that I, that I've talked about as well that. You know, we're really trying to make these broadly available so that people can access You know, some of the resources that we've created, um, you know, are available now on our website. And um, and we just want to make people, um, you know, know that these are these are available for them to, to use if they if they want.
0: Hmm. And you're going to be like holding town halls and those kind of things, yep. I understand as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we've held a number of town halls um, so far, and um, and in particular, we um, one of our partners, one of our um, you know fantastic contributors to this initiative, is the Ontario PSW Association, and our mm-hmm. partners there, Ian De Silva and, and marina Ferry have been fantastic and um, and have been involved again right from the beginning. And they've identified, you know, exactly what they need and what their members need, like what the what the PSWs need. And, and so we've created the, you know, the implementation strategy and the approach based on on their needs. And and we've held um, we've held town halls for the PSWs, in particular around the, the vaccine vaccine. Um, rollout and to, to answer their their concerns around that and we've held a number of other town halls for other individuals we've, we did one for um, as part of the globe and mail series recent recently to, to to talk about the vaccine rollout and um and we have another one coming up in um in a couple weeks as well so so absolutely using strategies like that just to let people know about it but also to 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 be available to answer questions because i think again one of the things that we've identified over the the last year and i'm sure david you've heard this from your you know from from your friends and family and your listeners that you know covid just has led to so many questions and uncertainties for people and and then you know they want to know where they can go for you know for the the best available evidence and so we're always happy to to be that um, that knowledge broker for people if um, if they have any questions or concerns.
0: Yes, I'm sure that uh, there will be no shortage of questions. One of those questions that is coming up now around the vaccine is is you know as you just mentioned vaccine hesitancy is is a big mm-hmm. question I guess for people as well.
2: Yeah, no, no, absolutely, and I think that. You know, right from the beginning, when the vaccine, um, the the first two vaccines were approved in December, you know, there's certainly been a lot of questions and, and concerns that people have had about the vaccine and this is one of the areas we've been working with the Ontario PSW Association um, on and, and, and others and to really understand what those, what those questions are. And, um, you know, and some of the common things that, that come up is, you know, people talking about, um, you know, mistrust of decision makers or policymakers mm. because the decisions and the guidance changes so frequently and, mm. and people not knowing who to listen to and to trust. And mm-hmm. so can we trust about the vaccine now? Um you know, people were concerned about the the perception that the vaccines were approved very quickly, and and um, you know, and, and how, what was the approval process? And so we spent spent some time um, kind of clarifying that the the process went through all the same stages as any vaccine. It's just that efficiencies were found in terms of like an, a rolling, ongoing assessment of the, of the evidence that allowed them to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. Other questions that have come up are around: um, you know, Is the vaccine going to make me ill? And you know, does it contain animal products or, mm-hmm. um, you know, or fetal tissue? And and so there's a lot of questions like that that that, that people have had, and and you know, no, it doesn't. They, you know, none of none of the four vaccines that have been approved contain you know either animal products or fetal tissue, mm-hmm. um, and um, and they're all they're all effective. And and certainly as more vaccines come out now, you know, there's been you know. As with each one, there's additional questions that come out around, you know, um, which one is the most effective, Mm. you know, which one, which one should I get? Um, and, and one of our uh, infectious disease physicians said yesterday, he always tells people, you know, the best vaccine is the, is the first one that you're offered (laughs) and the the first one that you can get. And so, um, and I think that's a great and great advice. But now there's more questions around now that the guidance, you know, is is changing around the timelines between dose one and dose two mm-hmm. um, for the vaccines that are requiring two doses. And so There've been a lot of questions about that, and so um, a lot of our town halls have been to, to answer those questions and address some of the myths that have, have mm-hmm. come up about the vaccine, and um, and hopefully address people's um, people's concerns. And we've created some infographics as well, and and those are on our on our website um, wellness um, wellnesshub.ca. Okay. And if anybody is interested, um, you know, I would encourage them to have a look at that. We're just in the midst of, of updating it to include include the the janssen or the johnson and johnson vaccine that was just approved so that that um the latest one will be available but um it, you know the information and, and how the resident or how the viruses or viruses how the um how the vaccines are approved in canada all those processes are are outlined in, in our infographic and if people have a look at it and if they have questions or see gaps and say okay this is great but you didn't answer this mm. you know send us an email and we're we'll happily answer that question and and um and provide a resource to to help meet your need
0: right and what was that website again
2: um it's wellness-hub.ca okay. Hub.
0: okay great Thank you. Now, given the way COVID has been spreading over the last year, and now we've got the variants that are emerging and mutations that are going to probably keep happening, um, you know, I've I've been fortunate enough to be interviewing a number of other people on this whole topic, um, other immunologists and, and, you know, trying to find out information. And, And I guess as we go forward... In, in terms of what you're going to be looking at, and part of those things is, is um, how many people may have been asymptomatic and have been exposed to this already. Do you expect that you might find that the, a, a greater part of the population has already been exposed to the virus
2: yeah, certainly possible. We may, um, you know, and, and not, you know, not not our study alone, but I think you know the other studies that have been funded. Um, you know, they're looking at different, um, you know, they're they're looking at different populations and things at different time points, and and certainly that's one of the reasons why these studies were funded to give us a better a better estimate of that. You know, I think you mentioned around the variants. I think the concern that everybody has is, you know, um, you know, are how what's going to be the impact of, of the variants and um and in particular where as you know we're anticipating in Ontario that um you know we'll probably in the next um in the next couple of weeks see see the variants you know being up to 40 percent of the positive cases that mm-hmm. we see and um and um and that's really you know one of the one of the concerns that um that we have and and as you know there's been a lot lately around in. You know, are we seeing the start of, of wave three, given, um, given mm-hmm. the numbers in Ontario? And, um, and, and certainly the, the, the role of the variant is, is definitely a part of that, that we have, to, we have to consider.
0: Yes, and I guess that brings up the other question around the vaccines. A lot of people are asking about how the vaccine <laughs> will um, protect against these variants that are coming out.
2: Yeah, I think you know. I think it's really um, quite promising to see the to see the data from other countries showing um, showing good protection. You know, like in the UK, for example. Um, and I think that's been that's been really reassuring to see, and um, and certainly you know again, I would encourage everybody to to um, you know the the vaccines are just you know it's it's amazing, it's exciting, and it's the light at the end of the tunnel and when we see, um, the data that recently came out in Ontario, just showing the the impact, you know, with the first eight weeks of, um, of the vaccine delivery and in the long-term care sector and the, and the decrease in incidence of infections in residents and staff and, you know, has just been phenomenal. And I think, you know, um, that's, that's really, really, um, very, very promising and, and we are, are really hoping that um, you know, as a, now that we have a, a better supply chain, um, the more robust supply chain, you know, we we anticipate that you know we will continue to see um, see a, a fantastic impact like that. So I do think if you reflect, you know, as you know, it's the one year anniversary this week of the, <laughs> right. the pandemic. And mm. I don't think any of us wanted to be celebrating this anniversary and mm. our market in any way. But um, when you reflect on on really, you know, it's, it's been a terrible year in so many ways. It's affected everybody worldwide.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But the fact that we have four vaccines approved now in Canada, you know, the fact that we have in you know, Drugs that are approved for for use as well, you know, with um, tocilizumab and you know, and dex and, and dexamethasone and things. You know, like in March 2020, we had nothing in our toolkit aside from the PPE, mm. Um, mm. and um, and now you know we have so many different tools in our in our toolkit that um, that have been created in the past year, and I think that's just a phenomenal phenomenal, um, statement and, and, um, you know, I walked by our vaccine clinic, um, on the, on the weekend when they were doing a pilot test of patients over the age of, of 80. And and I, I got quite tearful seeing, you know, seeing some of my patients lining up, mm. you know, who hadn't been out of the house and, you know, in, in, months and months and months and, mm. and to see them, you know, lined up to get the vaccine and how, you know, like one of them said to me that they, you know, that they just never thought they would see this day. And yeah. that it's a year, um, you know, from, from when this started, I think that's that's
0: pretty remarkable. You mentioned remarkable and it is remarkable because it seems that uh, technology has certainly come a long way. These vaccines have been developed in record time, as you pointed out. And, and that's partly due because of new technology, correct, in terms of how they were developed. And, and then I guess an RNA kind of a ra- vaccine rather than the, the typical kind of vaccine we've used in the past.
2: Well, I think the mRNA um, certainly the technology has has been around. It's not it's not new in, in that sense. But I think that um, you know really the um, uh, you know how quickly it was developed and for um, for its use at this particular time you know, was quite novel. But I think it's also highlighted that. The innovation and how um, you know how people can can come together um, and solve these mm. these you know major challenges and and I think that's just been you know incredible to to see worldwide how you know different groups taking you know slightly different approaches like there was the mRNA virus and then you know the 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 Astra, um, um, or the astrazeneca and the um, and the janssen virus you know taking mm. a different approach like it's it's just been Really, really phenomenal to see how this is, has has developed. You know, alongside you know, there's the vaccine pieces, but then alongside the work looking at um, you know for, for people who who do have COVID and, and infections, different management um, and, and people working again worldwide collaboratively on identifying potential interventions and testing them together and, and trying to do it as quickly as possible and as robustly as possible, so that um, so that we can we can immediately implement but i but i also realize that it's challenging because you know when everything when there's so much that's going on and we and there's so much that we don't know but there's so much research that's going on to try and fill these gaps you know i I, I do think that sometimes um you know People maybe aren't um, aren't always. We we don't do a very good job sometimes about talking about all these different things and what the processes are, and that there are checks and balances that are um, that are in place to make sure that everything is done safely.
0: Well, I think we're probably going to see more of these, uh, these things appearing over the next year as well, as you continue to go through with your study that you're going to be doing. And we look forward to hearing more about the findings that you will be presenting and, and bringing forward. And, uh, we thank you for all the work that you do to help us get through this uh, COVID 19 pandemic that you and your, your, uh, peers will be working on. And, uh, you know, the other thing that you mentioned earlier was stress and, and, and the work that, uh, you know you're going to be doing to help with the the workers themselves the staff in these long term care homes uh, stress is a big factor in those areas
2: so, so absolutely. and I would just encourage everybody to, um, you know, it's it's okay to, to say that you're not doing okay and, and mm. to, to, to need help. And, you know, I always encourage people to, um, you know, to, to reach out and to, to also to check in on each other to make sure that you regularly check in on people and in particular socially isolated seniors, older adults who are living in the community by themselves, you know, to, to check in on them. But but everybody needs to have, you know, we often talk about in, um, you know, in my, in my department of medicine, we talk about having a wellness buddy so that you have somebody that, you know, that you can, um, who's going to check in on you and you check in on them. And I think it's so important that we, you know, we, we don't forget that and, and look after each other and look after ourselves, um, and, you know, and then make sure that everybody, um, is mindful of that. Cause it's very easy to, um, to forget about that and, um, and absolutely agree that, um, it's been an incredibly you know, challenging and stressful year for, for everybody around the world. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's remarkable to see what's happened in the past year and how everybody is, has pulled together. And, you know, I always tell everybody that I have the best job in the world because, um, you know, I get, I get to see patients and, um, you know, interact with learners and, and then I get paid to ask and answer questions for a living. Like, I can't believe how fortunate I am. Mm. But one of the one of the silver linings of COVID has been to be able to walk into the hospital, you know, every single day and to see the incredible acts of kindness that I that I get to see and how mm. people pull together. And, you know, and, and you know, I'm. I'm not saying I would, I have enjoyed the COVID experience, but, um, but that's one of the things that I see as a, you know, as a real, um, as a real joy in the past year is just to see that kindness.
0: Mm. Uh, I hear what you're saying, and I know that none of us have enjoyed the last year, but there, there have been some things that have been positive in, in some ways that have, that have come out of this as we move forward. Dr. Stress, I want to thank you very much for your time to talk to us on the show and share uh, your uh, knowledge, as well as what you'll be doing over the next year with the study that you'll be conducting. And uh, hopefully we can talk again in the future.
2: Thank you very much. Happy to chat anytime, but thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is uh, Dr. Sharon Strauss. She is a geriatrician and clinical epidemiologist, and she is trained at the University of Toronto and at the University of Oxford, and she is uh, also the physician-in-chief at St. Michael's Hospital and professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. been talking to her about the part of the study that she'll be working on with this pan-Canadian studies investigation as to why COVID-19 has been so devastating to long-term care facilities and residents and staff across the country. And remember, if you have questions or if you'd like to find out more, one of the things you can do is go to uh, the website that uh, Dr. Strauss mentioned, and that is wellness-hub.hub.ca. Wellness-hub.ca. We'll be right back with more on Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
0: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, anywhere across the country, if you download not only the Radio Player Canada app, but now we are on iHeartRadio as well. So take us anywhere. It is a pleasure to welcome Joe Hester. He is the Executive Director of Anishinaabe Health Toronto, but he is also an advisor to the Toronto Indigenous Health Advisory Circle, as well as... Toronto Centre Local Health Integration Network and the Toronto Public Health Department. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Anishinaabe Health Toronto, I believe, had some good news uh, in around December. I think that for a while now you've been looking to try and find a home for yourselves, and it looks to be that uh, perhaps that's now going to be happening.
1: Yeah, it's... uh, uh Coming to an end of a, a pretty long journey. Actually, I mm-hmm. can remember oh back in 2002, I believe it was, when we made our first submission to the Ministry of Health in terms of a capital project, uh, building a new facility. And uh, so it's been a, a long journey, but now it's uh, we can see the end is is near, and uh, we'll have a, a new facility. In due course, uh, we're looking to start construction probably uh, in the summer of this year. Mm-hmm, That's great, and and where is that going to be located? the The land that uh, we have is located at the corner of Front and Cherry Street in the West Donlands. It's a two point four acre parcel of land, and uh, we're also developing other, other uh, things on that, on that property, which includes one of our sister organizations, uh, Mizuabi, mm. who will have, uh, you know, training, uh, training and education opportunities. And uh, within the same facility, there'll be an Indigenous uh, daycare and child family services.
0: Oh, that sounds great! Congratulations on that. And mm-hmm. uh, do you have at this point uh, someone? Has the tender been closed? Have you got someone that is going to be looking after the construction at this point?
1: Well, we're uh, we're just now. And that's why you should ask. We're just very now very close to uh, finishing the tendering process.
0: Okay. And so, when might people expect an announcement on that?
1: Well, we hope we would be able to do something. Uh, in a matter of weeks right now. So uh, hmm. as you know, the tender process can take some time. Sure. And, uh, uh, we want to make sure that uh, everyone has had the input required in terms of submitting a bid. and uh, So we're, we're kind of in the thick of it now, and uh, hopefully the, the end is close, very close now.
0: And, and I see that you're hoping, if all goes well, you're planning to uh, break some ground and have a, gra- a groundbreaking ceremony on June
1: 21st. That's uh, a projected date, and hopefully we can meet that target. It, ha- it has been a moving target uh, mm-hmm. for the last little while, but we're hopeful, and uh, uh, we'll be doing it a little bit different in terms of how groundbreaking is, uh, you know, uh, known by most people will yes. be doing it uh, from our perspective as indigenous people right uh so it should be uh should be a good one
0: yeah has covid had an impact on any of this at all
1: uh yes uh, to some degree uh it affected uh, uh not only ourselves but the people that we have to interact with like with city and mm. waterfront toronto and uh So everybody had to adjust to uh, the COVID environment. Uh, So early on, we had those, uh, you know, those uh, stops and starts because a new way of doing business and that kind of thing. Mm. In one sense, we were lucky because uh, Anishinaabe Health, along with other health services, was deemed uh, essential service.
0: Right. Now, I also understand that you've had, uh, this has gone out to donors, so people could uh, donate towards this project. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Uh, through our foundation, uh, the Health Foundation, uh, we had a a target of uh, $10 million uh, towards uh, supporting this, uh, this build. And uh, I believe we're pretty much there now. That's great. It's been a successful uh, campaign and uh, thanks to the board members there at the Foundation and uh, uh, Julie uh, Cookson, our Executive Director there. So it's been uh, a good hard uh, work that they've all done and brought us to this point.
0: Now, if people go online to Anishinaabe Health, uh, either Toronto or Foundation, you can actually see a a, a picture of this this, um, uh, facility. Uh, It looks quite uh, beautiful uh, to begin with. Roughly, do you know what the square footage
1: is going to be? In total for our facility, it'll be about, uh, I would say, um, close to 40,000, probably around 35, 35
0: to 40,000 square feet. Mm, great. Well, it all sounds wonderful and I uh, hope you uh, have great success with that. I'm sure you're all looking forward to to having a new home after waiting so long. So congratulations on that. Now, we brought up uh, COVID. Um, how have things affected you over the last year at Anishinaabe Health at Toronto?
1: Um, yes, COVID has been a challenge in many different ways. Of course, the we were uh, open throughout uh, COVID in in terms of providing health services albeit at a reduced level Uh, a lot of our interactions were done in a virtual uh, sense or or, or by phone and uh, so those that uh, you know it was felt by practitioners to see face to face of course arranged uh, appointments you know and and respecting of course all the all the uh kind of guidelines were in place in terms of social distancing masks etc etc uh so it's been a challenge to not only uh ensure safety of people accessing our services but also it required of us to really change in how we do things and uh, you know, simple things like what we used to do—that get a check signed, for instance. Now you, you got to do that virtually, mm. and that, so you got to set up a whole different system to do mm. that.
3: Mm.
1: So uh, it's been, uh, it's been in a word, challenging, I guess. But the, it also, I think, gave opportunity for for innovation to occur, and so we've experienced some of that as well.
0: Mm. Uh, speaking of innovation and uh, COVID, um, is the mobile unit part of Anishinaabe Health Toronto or, or part of the things that branch out from the foundation?
1: Yeah, the, the mobile or now mobiles, I should, I should say, we have uh, that, that's, that's part of Anishinaabe Health Toronto
3: mm-hmm.
1: in terms of uh, being able to reach out uh, to deliver services as well uh in the early going of course we were doing a lot of testing mm-hmm. and we were also doing flu vaccines as well and and of course we were poised to get, to get to a point of uh, uh, of vaccinations and that's what we're into right now but the our first mobile of course was an rv and we were able to do primary, healthcare from, from the mobile as well. Mm. It was particularly um, uh, efficient in terms of, excuse me, reaching people on the streets Mm. uh, and being able to provide not only primary healthcare, but to provide uh, testing and, and uh, also terms of flu, mm. uh, flu shots,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and now, uh, of course, vaccinations.
0: Yeah. How would you say that these mobile units that you have that are helping, as you say, people that are on streets that are homeless is making an impact on their lives?
1: Uh, I think uh, very much so. Like We've had a, a long history of, of working with uh, the homeless population. As you probably can appreciate, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, reports in the past have identified a higher prevalence of our our people on the streets. And so it became very important to establish that relationship. And we've continued that throughout the years. And uh, so the the impact uh, that we're able to make is based on, uh, you know, historical relationship, but also, you know, a trust factor built up where were easily recognizable and accepted on the street to provide services.
0: Mm-hmm. What other things are going on with Anishnabe Health Toronto during these times?
1: Well, I think there's been, a, you know, as you know, probably the there's been a lot of talk on hesitancy. Right. So you know, we had to uh, uh, to deal with that and, and be prepared for that, and uh, so uh, you know, alongside of you know communications. Strategy that uh, that we are able to make sure is there uh, to provide facts about the vaccines and and you know the the uh, the upside story so to speak in terms of being able to access uh, uh, vaccines for not only for yourself but you know protection for your family and mm-hmm. friends as well mm-hmm. and so uh, I think in, in many ways we are able to overcome degree of that hesitancy mm-hmm. and you know hesitancy is something that's been long entrenched I think uh, coming from uh, you know uh, it's just another aspect that is reflective of the relationship between uh, indigenous people and western society it's a, it's a mistrust sure it's too often uh, diagnosis in the past uh, you know was diagnosed was drunkenness for instance Mm -hmm. and so you know there's an admitted racism uh uh, in in the system in the health system that really has to be be addressed and so uh i think when we're able to provide services directly to our people then you know uh, there's less resistance less hesitancy to to make sure that you uh you know, uh, access services, not only for yourself, but your family and community.
0: Right. Uh, Joe, as you think to the future and, and the new building that you're going to be getting, do you think that that the COVID has had an, an impact in terms of how you might be addressing or setting up the building in the future?
1: Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it goes without saying in terms of it's, uh, how we structure our work environment is certainly uh, has certainly been impacted, and and I think uh, you know we'd be remiss if we don't uh, analyze that a little bit more and look at our uh, need for a working environment and and be maybe just as or more effective that uh, in terms of what we currently do or have done in the past. Uh, when we you know uh, working virtually uh, can have its real uh, positive kinds of things, but too much can be negative as well mm. so you know so you, you need to try to find a balance there uh, and so yeah it'll it'll impact uh, in one shape or another how our work environment uh, will be, going into the future right uh, now joe the
0: other thing that we mentioned here was that there's the anishinabe health foundation and then there's anishinabe health toronto and mm-hmm. toronto Anishnabe health falls under the wing of anishinabe health foundation w- what else does the foundation look after
1: well the, the foundation really is a separate entity legally okay. speaking okay and, and you know it's it provides, uh, uh, fundraising in terms of, uh, it's much like, I guess, if you look at the hospital situation, they have their own foundations. Mm. Uh, I believe, I think we're the only community health center that has a foundation of its own as well. Mm. So it's a relationship as opposed to, you know, uh, one overseeing the other. I see. Uh, we work in partnership in terms of being able to, uh, Raise funds for specific areas. So we would say to the foundation, "Here's an area of need," and, uh, and the foundation would see if we are able to be able to raise those resources uh, that you know uh, are not easily obtainable from other sources like government.
0: Mm. So then, uh, as we pointed out earlier, people could donate towards the, the cause of your facility. That would have been done through the foundation, and uh, people want to still uh, donate. They, they can by going to, to Anishinaabe Health Foundation?
1: Yes. Uh, in, in our, our website, Anishinaabe Health Toronto, also has a link to the mm-hmm. foundation where donations can be made. As I mentioned, the capital end is, is still uh, taking funds and, and support, but there are also other projects that, uh, uh, that we'll be doing uh, and the foundation will assist uh, those programs. Just to give you an idea, for instance, we're trying to uh, start uh, a development program uh, to, to uh, I guess for well, lack of better words, to train traditional people and traditional helpers, uh, and to be eventually to be able to practice our, our traditional methods and mm. approaches to, to health services, health care. And uh, so the foundation will be very, very helpful uh, to us to, to get that, uh, that program underway at some point in time.
0: Right. Sounds good. Joe, it's Mm -hmm. been a real pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and tell us about uh, what's going on at Anishinaabe Health Toronto, as as well as the new home that you're going to be moving into, hopefully breaking ground on June 21st. And that's pretty exciting. It's some good news during these uh, COVID times, I would say.
1: Yes, it is. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, well, you take care. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and I look forward to having you back on the show in the future. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, take care. That's the voice of Joe Hester. He is the Executive Director of Anishinaabe Health Toronto. We've been talking to him about Anishinaabe Health Toronto and the, their new home, as well as uh, things going on during COVID-19 and their new mobile units as well. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David
3: Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.